What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow on Twitter at TweetJHood. Legendary high school basketball coach Landon Sonny Cox, who won three state championships and a state record 85% of his games at King High School, passed away on Tuesday morning. Cox was born in Cincinnati in 1938 and took over the King program in 1981. Check this out. 503 victories in 20 years. A legend uh, for that King High School program. Uh, and we talked to someone who knew him very well, part of that King program. We turned to um, an assistant coach for the Detroit Mercy in the Horizon League, Chicago's own Tracy Dildy, with us here on ESPN 1000. Coach Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. It's my pleasure, man. It's always good to uh, talk to my family. And, mm-hmm. Hood, you know we are family, and you know how much you have done just for my career, as far as, man, getting me hooked up uh, when I was head coach of Chicago State, where you – Sent the guy to actually get us uh, our games aired on radio, man. And mm-hmm. so, just everything you have done for me, man, over the past you know years for my career, I'm just so appreciative and humble and just thankful to you, man. And I pray that you and your family and your radio family are staying safe and healthy during these um, unpleasant times, man. Yeah, Coach, I appreciate that. I hope you and yours are doing well also. I wanted to um, – give you a day um, because I didn't want to call you yesterday. I want to talk to you today to give you a moment to, to really reflect on coach Cox, because you talk about an icon in this city um, and and what he brought to the table for that uh, King high school program. What are your memories when you think of, of coach Cox and what he did for you and during his time as a coach? Well, I'll tell you, when you talk about just memories, man, I have so many memories of just what he has done for me, man, and just the impact he has had over my life, and not only over my life, but uh, all my brothers, man, who have played at King, came to the uh, Martin Luther King High School uh, basketball program. And, uh, and and when you talk about, man, um, you know, I came from uh, one of those backgrounds where it was a fatherless background and where my mother basically wore both hats. And what I do know that she, he, he was a, huge help to her because like I said and I've told people for years man he was the closest thing uh that I had as a father um at some real crucial times of my life when you talk about going from eighth grade into high school and from day one man from uh uh my day one going into high school with him you know he recruited me and brought me into King actually when he was going over to King to be the uh, varsity coach and so, uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's had so much influence and has really just impacted me uh, at a crucial time where, you know, it's easy where I could have went the wrong way, got involved with gangs, got involved with drugs and things like that. And he kept me on that straight and narrow. And so I'm just thankful for how God used him to just really uh, be such a positive influence in my life. And it's hard for me to imagine that if it wasn't for uh, – Coach Cox in my life, where I would be today, man. It's just hard to imagine. I don't even want to imagine that. That's the impact he had when you talk about from even, you know, teaching me how to uh, tie, tie, man. 
and you know just uh, you know making sure that I did the right things uh, whether I was on the court or off the court, and then just the time that he put in us. Uh, when I was in high school, I can't think of a day. I know it never was two days went by in four years of high school that I didn't see coach every day. Mm. You hear that? We talk about they said it's 365 days a year. Yeah. Well, I saw him, uh, and me and other players, we saw him 300 and I'm going to say 360 days a year. Wow. That is something that's that's commitment and making sure that everybody's on the same page. Not from a basketball standpoint, is a life standpoint. Sounds like coach, and that's what it was. Uh, you know, in the summer times, man, that, that while we didn't get caught up in certain situations, he would pick us up at nine o'clock in the morning. He would pick us up. Everybody at nine o'clock and go to each house pick us up, and we would be with him all the way up until nine o'clock that night. And so we would eat breakfast lunch and dinner he would feed us breakfast lunch and dinner we would go play in tournaments and we would practice and so he dictated and he dominated our time which you know we enjoyed and but it also it was uh we didn't have no idle time we didn't have no time to be going to hang out we didn't have no time to be uh around the wrong influences and so man that yeah you know those things i think has uh really made an impact that nowadays as I see some of the young guys getting in trouble and just with the limitation that the high school coach, especially in the Chicago area, the limitation of time that they allowed to put in with these young people. And if it was back like it was when the Sonny Cox and the Habrick days and you with him all day, every day, man, it, you know, it, it really has a major impact. You would have guys more, you know, focused guys, uh, not doing all the, uh, when they go to college, transferring, you know, so it just was just, you know, I, I couldn't even bottle it up to just to, to, to express the impact that he has had uh, on my life. And like I said, my other brother's lives who also uh, played at King. And uh, it don't matter what years they played, we do have a, a brotherhood and a brother fraternity of everyone who has played for him. And like we had a, a group text out that we sent out, uh, the last couple days and, you know, just kind of encouraging each other, lifting each other up because uh, I, I tell you, this is a tough one, brother. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Uh, King Jaguar and assistant coach for Detroit Mercy, uh, Tracy Dildy with me, Jonathan Hood on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Coach, well, what what made Coach Cox unique uh, from a basketball standpoint as a head coach? What stood out most about his coaching? Well, what made him unique was because he was one of the first guys that I know that were actually coaching, but also was a guy's counselor. And so people talked about the way he dressed. Well, he dressed that way where he wore suit and tie uh, every day because his main job was that he was the guy's counselor. And back in the day, if you recall, it used to be the basketball coaches were gym teachers. He wasn't a gym teacher. He was actually guiding counselor counselor and the other thing was i just think that he wanted to just really input in us that we are seeing someone look like us wearing a suit and tie a professional business person and also you know pouring in to kids that's not bloodly his kids 
and he could have never gotten paid for the time and the effort and the things he did, you know, for us. He went way further than basketball. And, and, and this one from my when you talk about if it was anybody on our team that needed a pair of pants, needed some shoes, it don't matter if it was the, the best player to the 15th player or a far socket, he was getting them their shoes, he was getting them clothes. And those are the stories that people don't talk about when you talk about Coach Cox. So, you know, everybody hear about just the flamboyant, everybody hear about, you know, the winning. And, you know, he was winning way more than just championships. Uh, he was just winning the game of life for um, everyone who ever, you know, been involved with or had the pleasure of being just kind of, you know, in his presence, man. So, Coach, I've never asked you this before, but I, now I can kind of put two and two together in some ways. Early in your career, you dressed uh, with a three-piece three suit when you was at Chicago State. Did you get that from Coach Cox initially? That's just who I'm telling you. He was the first, when you talk about, when you talk about the first, the first uh, African-American male elder that I've seen wore suits every day. And so it was in my head, hey, man, when I get older, I'm going to do that. And then it just was a, uh, it just happened to be, I got into the coaching, and that was kind of our dress clothes to wear suits. And so I really, at that time, uh, it stuck in my back. My coach always say, hey, you want to look good or you want to play good. And so that always, and so I always, you know, and I, and I got a little flack about the flashy suits. But if I buy it, it was always, Coach saying you want to be the sharpest because his whole thing was we're going to be the best team and we're going to be the best dressed team. And so I got caught up in that for a minute of being the best dressed coach. And, you know, so so that had a, that played a huge part, man, and kind of um, the way I was dressing flashy back then, man. And, you know, and, but then I got older. I'm mature, and like they say, you 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 know better, so you do better. And so I I, I did uh, get older, get wiser, and um, you know, I mean, kind of changed that a little bit. But um, I just tell you, man, that the, the impact that uh, coach has uh, just had on me, and one of the things that he just always was said that it's my duty to give back the same passion, to give back the same time give back the same encouragement that he has given that that that's his only reward he always said man i just want you guys to graduate from college i want to get everybody a college scholarship because he knew just the economics of uh you know the makeup of our team the only way we were going to college was this it was on a college scholarship and his whole goal was i want to get everybody a scholarship and i want everybody to graduate from college and we, we, we pretty much did that. When you look at everybody talk about his winning uh, record as a coach, not many people talk about his graduation rate of mm -hmm. the players that played for him that went on to college and graduated. And so that rate is uh, up there right in the 80% also. So, Coach, um, I think we need to paint the picture, especially for our younger audience, of understanding 
how important King games were uh, on Drexel. Just the, I just remember as a kid, like you, you couldn't get in there. You couldn't get into the games that you played or and to see Sonny Cox uh, led teams. You had to know somebody in the, on the side door to try to get in if you could. And then it was standing room only. What do you remember about like those Simeon King games in which it was just really uh, like a, a major event, not just on the high school level, but in the city. And I'm, it couldn't have been described even better than the way you just described it. We, you know, man, it's a picture that uh, somebody was showing me one time where it actually had people in a tree on the outside looking through the crack at one of our high school games. And that game happened to be like a, a, Phillip, a Phillips game. And so it was just the hottest ticket uh, going at that moment. When you talk about just some of the names that had um, came through King, and just the style in which we played, it was never, you know, the Farsaw used to play uh, before the varsity then. And you, 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 the Farsaw games would be packed just so people would get a seat in for the varsity games. And it was always, man, we never played, in, whether it was at home or on the road, we never played in front of a less uh, full-capacity uh, crowd. That was just a, it was an amazing time. I just remember like it was yesterday. The walls were sweat. Yes, yes, it was just yes. it, was, it, was, it was just be so many people there. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I I do have to say, um, you know, <laughs> Coach Cox had a couple things that resonated with me. One thing is is that he did not like downstate refs. Is he, he got used to the public league refs in a certain way because the refs knew. But when you guys went downstate, he was not happy about the, the officiating downstate. He also, I, I loved his like mini rivalry with like Barry Temkin uh, and some people in the media because he was always looking for knowing that the team was winning. He was looking for respect, so he didn't mind you know going after a Sakamoto or going after a, a, a Temkin back then, a Taylor Bell if he had to to get the respect that King deserved. I like that. He had some fire about him. And that's just what he did. And that's what it was about. It was really just what you said. Huh? It was about just getting King the respect that it deserved. And he had felt that for whatever reason, King never had gotten the respect that it truly deserved. And you talk about people who came through that program even before he coached there. When you're talking about the Teddy Grubbs, the Willie Scott, the Michael Bland, uh, the Simmons, these guys are guys that was really good players. And they came before Cox even ever got there. But they just, for whatever reason, people wasn't going down over there on 43rd and Drexel. And wasn't getting the publicity. And so he really came in with that chip on his shoulder that, hey, I'm going to make sure that they talk about King like they talking about back then, the Marshalls, the Collins, the, even the Simeons, even the uh, Robersons and those programs and his whole thing at Westerhouse. Mm-hmm. He said, I'm going to make sure King get those, that type of publicity. And then when you talk about just downstate officials, man, and, <laughs> ooh, and, and so but, he, but you know what he did? <laughs> he came up with a plan where he would have us go play in tournaments like in Galesburg, like in Quincy. Mm-hmm. And that way we would get the kind of officiating that we would see, that teams would see downstate. So he kind of, he was learning also of ways because he really couldn't, you know, he just never felt, not only that King didn't get a fair shot down with the, 
downstate officials. He said he didn't think public schools got a fair shot with officials. So that wasn't just a King thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he never really did anything ever just for, just, just for Cox or just for King. Everything he did, he was trying to make a statement to better the whole uh, uh, public league. Well, I, I just want to reach out to you, Coach, and my condolences. And as a fan of the King program, trying to get into those games, it was hard. You had to know somebody to get yeah. into those games to see you, man. Uh, yeah. It just we we lost a legend, and I just want to reminisce with you. And uh, uh, I look forward to talking to you again. Hopefully, we'll get the season in uh, for the Rising League, and I'll get a chance to see you. Yes, and you would, brother. And that's like last time when we came up to UIC, man. It was just always a pleasure, man. It, it, brother, we are spiritually connected, man, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it go years go by, time go by. We don't speak, but the love never changed, my brother. So, like I said earlier on, man, I really uh, appreciate you. I really, man, uh, admire the job that you have done over the years. And I just want to say thank you again, man, just for all you have done for my career. God bless you, man. Thank you so much, as always. God bless, brother. Have a great one, man. I'll be watching. All right, listen. All right, love you, man. All, all right. right, love you, assistant coach uh, from Detroit Mercy, Tracy Dildy, uh, a King High School star with that Jaguars team with us here, uh, right here on ESPN One Thousand. Coming up, oh, it reminds this day reminds me of something special in Chicago Cubs history. We will talk about that next. This is Chicago's home for sports. Stream ESPN 1000 easily on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. You're listening to Under the Hood on ESPN 1000. 20 years ago, Kerry Wood struck out 20 Houston Astros. Here's what's interesting about this. What's interesting about it is, is that I happen to be watching this game you know, on May 6th and you know, and just watching this game and it was just kind of a regular game. It was cold and, and rainy. It was not a great day weather wise. And Kerry Wood decided to be Roger Clemens for a game. He decided to be Nolan Ryan. He struck out 20 Astros. What a terrific game it was for, for Kerry Wood. Um, crazy 20 strikeouts. And here's the funny thing about this is that you could just ask people like, Hey, you know, what about that Kerry Wood game? And someone will say, oh, yeah, I was there. You mean the 20 strikeout game? Oh, yeah, I was there. If you've ever seen any highlights of this game, there might have been 10,000 people in the ballpark at Wrigley Field because it was such a, a bad day weather-wise. <laughs> and people that were there in the bleachers, cool. But if you take a look at that first and third baseline, nobody was there. It was a raw, chilly day. And you think, okay, just another, I'll go to Wrigley Field when the weather's better. Yeah, I'll go see Jeff Bagwell and Dave Clark, and uh, you know I'll start seeing those guys later on, right? Brad Osmus, I'll see those guys later on. Ricky Gutierrez, but Kerry Wood was so locked in. I'll remember also after the game is done, and Chip Carey and Steve Stone are talking to Kerry Wood, his right hand was shaking. The adrenaline was still flowing. I'll never forget that as he puts the the uh, the earpiece to his ear. His hand was just shaking like a leaf because he wanted to strike out more Astros. <laughs> his his arm just and his hand just kept shaking, right? Because he was just so good and so locked in. It, uh, it's one of the best performances I've ever seen from a Chicago pitcher. Cubs, Sox, either one. Um, and it was just just a random day, like Kerry Wood against Shane Reynolds. 
What do you expect out of that game? Just a you know, just a, a game nobody went to, very few went to, and then everyone you everywhere you turn, people say, "Oh yeah, I was at that game. I was at that game." I, I, you couldn't have been at that game. There's hardly anybody there. Well, we'll uh, we'll go down memory lane, and I will tell you coming up at eight thirty for Tales from the Hood. We have a special Tales from the Hood. Look down at your feet. What are you wearing? Are you wearing just socks? Are you wearing just slides and socks? Are you wearing gym shoes? We'll talk about what's on your feet coming up for Tales from the Hood. But right now, let's go back down memory lane. Boy, 20 strikeout game for Kerry Wood as he had his best game ever as a Cub. Biggio didn't come close to getting around on that high heater. There's a strikeout for Wood to open the game. It's here in his home ballpark. Curveball strikes out Bell. Oh, he looks good. Not fair to compare this kid to Nolan, but just in terms of his stuff. He has struck out the side. The Houston Astros must be very impressed. Woo-hoo. There is four straight strikeouts for Kerry Wood to open this game. Whoa, then he comes up and in for his fifth consecutive strikeout. We'll see if the runner goes. Gutierrez on 3-2. He doesn't. Osma strikes out throw behind the runner to first base. Six strikeouts already. And another one strike three. Seven strikeouts. And so far no walks in this game. It's seven strikeouts. That's number eight. In the middle of the fourth inning the Cubs lead it one to nothing. This guy could be rookie of the year. Add him to the list. Strike three. Nine strikeouts for Wood. It's funny, I was in college, Browning. Yeah. Trying to scrape up money to get a pizza. Wow. Look at this guy. That's ten strikeouts. Five of them fall. Got a nice, easy delivery. Strike three. Struck out the side. For the second time today, that's five consecutive strikeouts. It's another one, number 12. Nine of them, or seven of them rather, have been called third strikes. Then he came right back to get Bell on a foul pop. He whips Bagwell for the third time. That's 13. 3-2 now. And struck him out. 14 Ks. Tried to check. They ring him up on appeal to Terry Tata at first. That's 15 strikeouts. Struck him out. That's number 16. New club record for the Chicago Cubs for a nine-inning game. That's number 17. Number 18 and six in a row for Kerry Wood. The Cubs lead it in the middle of the eighth, one to nothing. Two runs, one earned. He walked two. He struck out ten. That's number 19 for Kerry Wood, tying a National League record. 20-year-old Kerry Wood. 
gets Derek Bell for his 20th strikeout, a National League record. He has his first Major League complete game and shutout, and it's a one-hitter over the Houston Astros. They're mobbing Kerry Wood at the mound. The young Texan has blanked the Astros two to nothing. What do you got there? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Tales from the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Here we go. Tales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000, the brand new ESPN Chicago app. Ah, Danny from the Berg, he was at the uh, Kerry Wood 20 strikeout game 22 years ago, anniversary that we talked about just moments ago. Yeah, I, I, you know, many people say that they were there, but it was never there with like no more seemingly... It felt like watching on, on television, like 10,000 people in the ballpark. Um, but Tales from the Hood, stories of sports, entertainment, everything else in between. Glad that you're with us here on ESPN 1000. Look down at your feet. What do you see? What's on your feet right now? Right? You might be wearing slides, just socks. Maybe you got some, some gym shoes on. Well, I want to find out what you're wearing because we have got our guy. Anytime that we want to talk of uh, sports apparel and shoes, uh, we turn to our guy from ESPN.com, Nick DePaula. Nick DePaula joins us here on ESPN 1000 with Jonathan Hood. Nick, as always, I appreciate it, my man. Thanks for coming on the show. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we want everyone to go to ESPN.com, look for the piece entitled Ranking the Top 74 Sneakers in NBA History. We'll get to that in a little bit. I want to find out, Nick, first and foremost, your thoughts on The Last Dance. I know you've been watching it, man. What, what do you think of what you've seen so far, the documentary? So I've been watching it, I think, four hours at a time because I'll watch the last two episodes and then I'm excited for, of course, the new ones. And I mean, so far it's been awesome just to see whether it's the practice footage or just kind of all the behind-scenes stuff. I think, for me, I just love seeing any kind of little way that Michael is competitive, um, whether it's challenging Scott Burrell in practice or uh, shooting quarters with some of the security guys. So I think it's been great to kind of see all those different angles of how Michael comes at it. Um, and so far it's been great. Nick, um, so tell us a story about what Michael was going through in his last game in Madison Square Garden where he puts all those Air Jordan 1s on, and he says he was bleeding. His feet were bleeding. He wanted to put what those original shoes on one more time. What was going on with them there? Is there was there technology to help him out there during that time? Well, I mean, the Air Jordan 1 is a pretty, it's a pretty basic shoe. Uh, it's just a lot of leather and and I guess by that point, he had probably gotten so used to all the all the upgrades they had made. I mean, he was coming off of the Jordan 11, 12, and 13 at that point. Um, so going back, I think I think it was partly that the shoe was pretty stiff. And then uh, on top of that, they were, I think, a half size or even a full size too small. Because um, the shoes that he had stashed were just, a, a, I think, a size 12 and a half. And he was always playing at 13 and a half. Um, so I think all that kind of added up to it. And then... Of course, he still had had a pretty good game in the Garden, knowing it was his last game. So um, it was it was funny to see that Norman kind of come back and him laugh about it now because it wasn't like nowadays where you got your PJ Tuckers and guys around the league that are always wearing cool old old vintage stuff. Right. Uh, when Mike did that back in the day, it was like such an uncommon thing and caught everybody by surprise, and it was just an awesome moment. 
Uh, Nick DiPaolo from ESPN.com as we talk about uh, sports apparel on ESPN 1000 for our special Tales from the Hood. So, Nick, um, also coming out of the documentary, it's, it's, I think it's something that you and I both knew, but it's good to, for it to be a talking point in the documentary. Just, just envision, just for a minute, Michael Jordan, Adidas guy. How's that sound? I was joking with a buddy the second I saw it on the on the screen that I'd probably be coaching middle school basketball and teaching PE if he had signed with Adidas. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if we would have quite the sneaker industry as we know it today. Uh, you know, so it's it's one of the great what ifs, and you know they didn't they didn't mention this in the in the documentary, but um, you know obviously his mother really pushed him to attend the meeting with Nike and he eventually signed with Nike, and then his father should get a lot of credit too because. Um, it's funny, Adidas actually hired the designer of the Jordan 1 and 2 in 1987, and he was trying to bring Michael to Adidas with him. Um, and his dad basically told him to honor the contract with Nike and, and um, you know, stick with Nike. So he kind of had two opportunities at that point, potentially, to possibly go to Adidas. And I think Michael was pretty outspoken on the documentary about how, you know, Adidas was his favorite brand at that time. So it's it's definitely crazy to think in terms of a what-if scenario and, you know, it's it's hard to imagine that that Air Jordans, as we know them, would have would have had you know possibly as as great of a run as they ended up did on the Nike side. I you know I would have would have taken a lot of innovation on the Adidas side to to get it to what it was. It's kind of funny because as of late, I think for the last eight or nine years, I've been doing play by play and commentary for the UIC Flames, um, the uh, men's basketball team, and it's an Adidas um, school. So I, I, this is the most I've ever bought Adidas in my life because I'm it's a, it's aligns with the school. So I've been buying a lot more Adidas over the last eight to ten years. Oh, what uh, it, it's a little bit a little Yeezy and definitely a lot of the Ultra Boost. What what do you think of the Adidas shoe for twenty twenty? Yeah, so I mean they've I would say the last five years had a bunch of momentum. Obviously, you know they signed Kanye in twenty fifteen. That was a big part of it, but but they also launched the Boost cushioning technology around that time. So. I think that's been a huge thing for them. And then um, now in basketball, I think they're down to around 50 or so guys in the league. Um, and so between James Harden and Dame and uh, Trey Young coming up and Donovan Mitchell, like that's kind of their key guys. And then, of course, everybody in Chicago knows Derrick Rose, of course. So, yeah. um, you know, I think they're still they're still finding their way. We've kind of seen them kind of up and down in basketball and more success on the lifestyle side. But, um, I think going forward, they're going to have some good stuff coming with all those signature guys. Well, by the way, what would you say is if someone bought Air Jordan ones now, if they could find them, it's more or less um, kind of a a culture just wearing out with an outfit uh, shoe. You wouldn't suggest anyone play basketball in those things, right? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, <laughs> I know it's funny because people are going nuts about Michael playing in them, and uh, Montrez Harrell would wear them every once in a while on the Clippers uh, mm-hmm. last season. So he's He's probably him and PJ Tucker have played in ones uh, in the last couple of years, which is definitely crazy. I think, you know, those guys are a little different than Mike's because they've got custom orthotics and they try to at least uh, spruce them up a little bit. But yeah, I wouldn't really recommend playing in ones nowadays just because there's so much other stuff out there. So um, obviously, it's cool from a look standpoint, but yeah. probably not worth it. Just at this good with an outfit. I don't know, like, but I don't know about playing <laughs> yeah. them. You're right about that. So again, we ask you to go to ESPN.com, look for ranking the top 74 sneakers in NBA history. Okay, Nick. So we scroll down to the number one, and you go Air Jordan 11s. 
uh, worn by Jordan back in 1995 when it was released. What is so unique about this sneaker that you would deem it number one? Yeah, there's so many things that go go into that one. I think it's kind of the all-time perfect storm. Obviously, the look of the shoe is amazing with pad leather. And it's got the carbon fiber and the clear bottom. But, uh, you know, that shoe was actually designed by Tinker Hatfield when Michael was retired playing baseball. And he had people at Nike telling him not to keep going. Um, you know, the Jordan 10 on the bottom has kind of all of Michael's accomplishments written out. And the 10 was kind of a, kind of capped it off in a little bit, um, you know, in a way. So people were trying to have him stop at 10 and, and, and not release anymore. And he just kept pushing. So, that, A, it was, it was funny that it was designed kind of under that uh, atmosphere. And then, B, you know, that's the shoe Michael wore in uh, the 72 and 10 season. So, you know, it's, it's not always – I think that was one thing people were kind of fighting me about the list on is it's not just the best playing shoes, but obviously there's so many moments and things that happen in the shoes that takes them to a different tier. So I think the 11 kind of checks the box on so many different factors. And I think for anybody that's just starting out with Jordans or with any shoes, um, the 11 is kind of – 11, the ones, and the threes are, are kind of a must-have if you're just starting out. So uh, it's, it's a lot of factors for sure, and – and I think I think there's no I don't think there's any debate that it's the number one shoe, and I, I think that was pretty easy. So Air Jordan 11s is number one. We already talked about Air Jordan one is two. Um, the uh, Nike Air Force one uh, released in, in '82. I had those. It was a low top um, Nikes worn by Moses Malone. Um, that's that's still a classic shoe and and iconic from a music standpoint and just from a basketball standpoint, right? Yeah, and I mean, if you if you aren't going to play an Air Jordan ones, you definitely don't want to play an Air Force one. I mean, <laughs> Rashid, Rashid Wallace did for a long time, but yeah. but yeah, that's a it's a bit of a clunky shoe. But um, you know, lifestyle wise, it, it's one of the all time casual shoes. There's just a million different colorways. I think they still sell. I think it's something like 10 million pairs a year. Um, so it's it's crazy to think how popular that shoe has always been. Um, obviously, it came out in '82, and then Nelly had the song about about them in, uh, in the early 2000s, which kind of created a whole new momentum for them. But, but yeah, I mean, Air Force Ones is, a, is an all-time classic for sure. Let me ask you about this number 10. And, again, we ask you to go to the column so you can uh, argue amongst yourselves and, and me and Nick about uh, this list here. <laughs> so this this clunky Nike Hyperdunk uh, number 10 that was worn by Kobe in 2008, I mean, either that's a horrible picture or that's really what the maybe maybe you know what it is. I wouldn't have gotten that color. I think that's what it is, Nick. Is that's the oh, issue. See, that's the best part. That's it's the best part. Brutal. That's the Marty. That's the Marty McFly colorway, um, honoring the Back to the Future shoe, which that which the Hyperdunk has a couple nods to it. There's like the white collar and and uh, the wedge on the side. So there's it's not a direct kind of inspiration, but there's a couple nods. And then um, you know that was Nike's lightest shoe at that time, and a shoe that. You know, Kobe headlined, but also the entire 2008 Olympic team for the most part. I think there was eight or nine guys on that team wearing that shoe. Um, obviously, the redeemed team and, and kind of the gold medal recapturing after after the team came up short in 2004. So um, there was a lot that went into it. And then I think from just anybody that plays ball and is a hooper, like that's that's a lot of people's top five, I would say, top three even, um, just in terms of shoes to play in. So uh, the Hyperdunk is a more recent shoe, obviously, but uh doesn't quite have the, the historical impact of, of off-court wearing, but, I mean, it's it's a great one for sure. Uh, what is the uh, what is the latest on Pumas as of late? Um, I do still have 
it's funny. I was looking at the list and the Puma question came up because I was thinking, okay, I got two uh, blue Pumas canvas um, in the closet. I just haven't opened it up yet. It's still in my closet. Um, <laughs> so eventually at some point you'll go with some outfit. I just haven't opened them up yet. But what's the latest on Puma as far as um, numbers and interest? Yeah, so Puma basically came back into basketball 2018. Uh, they signed five first-round picks that year, and I think they're up to about a dozen guys in the NBA and a couple of WNBA players as well. Um, and so the Clyde, which is you know the first signature shoe in league history for Clyde Frazier, um, basically each year they're releasing a new shoe that kind of in some way takes a little inspiration from Clyde. Um, so they had the Clyde Court their first year and then the Clyde Hardwood this last year. And I think they're, they're, they've been really fun on social media and are kind of taking a different approach I think anybody coming into basketball, obviously, you know, challenging Nike and Jordan is no small task. So you got to do something different and something to stand out. Otherwise, it's going to be pretty tough to compete. But um, I've liked what they've been doing so far, and I'm curious to see what they come out with next for sure. Hey, Nick, um, Tyler here. With schools outside of UNC starting to get these Jordan brand sponsorships, you look at Oklahoma, Florida, how important – at least from the conversations you've had, is Air Jordan in recruiting some of these younger kids, whether it's football or basketball? Yeah, it's a massive thing. I mean, even one of my good friends, Patrick Christopher, played at Cal Berkeley when they were at Jordan School, and I remember he he picks them over uh, Texas and Kentucky only because they were Jordan. Uh, so I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's guys all the time that you hear about uh, that have that kind of love for Michael and the, and the shoes and and now they're doing the player exclusives to a different level than they ever have before. I mean, whether it's some of the Jordan 4 PEs or some of the Jordan 1s, um, the stuff they're making for all these schools is, are, are crazy. I mean, you've got you know Michigan and Georgetown even, and they've got some great ones as well. So um, I think it's a huge factor. I mean, obviously the facility and the level of, of the team success is going to be a factor. But um, as we've seen with the University of Oregon where I went, um, all those things outside in terms of all the different perks and the design and uniforms, uh, that stuff all plays a huge role. So, Nick, what are those? What are you wearing lately? Right now I got the Flintstone ones on. I'm just walking around barefoot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've got, it's been obviously an unusual time in terms of staying at the house. But, um, you know, I think for me I've been – it's funny you mentioned Jordan ones. I definitely still wear, wear ones often all the time. Uh, Ultra Boost is a go-to, just such a comfortable shoe. And then I've been wearing um, Shaken Destructs, which is Dennis Rodman's Nike shoe that kind of laced on the side. Mm-hmm. I've always loved those. I've been breaking out some kind of Bulls-related stuff just with all the last stand stuff going on. But, uh, but yeah, I always try to keep a good rotation going. I've got a few pairs here. so. Uh, but right now, uh, it's, been, it's been pretty slow, I'd say. Those Bulls colors go with everything. Yeah, exactly. And it's, <laughs> it's been crazy to see. I mean, we've seen, like, the Chicago ones, I would say for the most part we're going between five and seven hundred bucks online, and now they're going for twelve hundred. So um, the stuff that, the, or the I should say, the impact that the last dance is having on just a lot of the prices and everybody's nostalgia for stuff has been pretty crazy. I'm glad you spent some time, Nick. Uh, we we want people to read your column and um, and fight over uh, whether or not Nike Lebron 15s are better than the uh, the C Webs. So I, I love that. I love some of that conversation. Nothing like a nothing like a, nothing like a shoe that you see yourself in your your reflection in. The uh, yeah, the chrome the chrome C Dubs is a personal. I mean, I'm actually from Sacramento, so it's yeah. a little biased, but but I always thought that was a great All Star moment and. 
And I, like you said, it's been a lot of people fighting about stuff, and my Twitter mentions have been a disaster all day, so it's been pretty fun. <laughs> R.I.P. to your mentions. <laughs> exactly. Nick is, we appreciate it as always, man. Thanks for coming on the show in Chicago. All right. Thanks for having me. Nick DePaula with us here on Tales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports, ESPN 1000. Tomorrow between 7 and 10 right here on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app because it's NFL schedule night. This is when I go win-loss, 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 win-loss for the Bears and take a look at the schedule. Uh, we're going to have a fun time tomorrow. Also, throwback Thursday tomorrow as well, so make sure you're with us between 7 and 10 as the Bears will have their schedule officially released, and we'll give you the details of that uh, tomorrow night right here on ESPN 1000. Dan Marley. You know, Dan Marley was uh, prominently featured in the Last Dance documentary uh, last this past weekend. And Dan Marley with that Phoenix Suns team, that's Phoenix Suns team. I believe that the Phoenix Suns should have defeated the Bulls uh, in the finals that year that Charles Barkley, Marley, um, and those guys played the Bulls. I thought that that was the best team and the best competition that the Bulls faced in the championship era. And Charles Barkley... Never mind about the cuddly Barkley that you see now that comes on and, and is controversial and shoots from the hip. That guy was a tremendous basketball player, a great basketball player, Hall of Famer. Uh, so don't get the the TNT and his you know his laughter and you know how he makes jokes. That no, that guy was serious. He was a completely different person when he played versus him now as a a talk show host and a, an analyst for TNT and. Uh, CBS. So Dan Marley was part of that team as well. And, and so Dan Marley was asked on Carmen and Yurko, uh, were, were the Suns the toughest team the Bulls faced in the finals? I really do. And that's, uh, that 92-93 that team was, was really special for us. It was the first year that Charles came. It was right after the whole dream team scenario. Uh, as I said, he uh, won the MVP. America West Arena, where we played here in Phoenix, uh, uh, just opened up that year. Um, and we went through a lot. We won 62 games. It was really good. Had had a superstar in Charles, but had so many really good players around him. You know, Kevin Johnson, a guy uh, that didn't play a lot of games that year because of the injury, but was healthy in the playoffs. Tom Chambers, a fledgling star who had great series. Oliver Miller, Richard Dumas, Danny Ainge. Uh, our team was a real team, and I thought it was our destiny to beat them, and I thought we'd have a real shot at beating Michael in Chicago and, you know, the first two games in Phoenix, we faltered. Uh, but somehow, as you said, uh, in that little clip, we found a way to win two out of three, uh, saved the city in Chicago in game five. And uh, to this day, I think that if, if we wouldn't have left Paxton open and he doesn't make that shot and we go to game seven, I really do believe that we would have won the championship, but Chicago and Michael proved us wrong and they were the better team in the series. They certainly were, uh, Dan Marley, the head coach, uh, for, oh, Tyler. Grand Canyon. Grand Canyon. Thank you very much. Why do I not know that? I was there. It's the you say you claim you like house music, all right? And you don't know Grand Canyon University's head coach. Come on, Hood. Yeah, just it's you know I'm aging before your very ears. <laughs> that is, they don't play basketball, right? They they have EDM concerts. There. <laughs> That's true. That's exactly right. I was there. Uh, just um, I, <laughs> it's it's the loudest place I've ever had to broadcast from. 
that that was just amazing that experience what they have at grand canyon right there is special doesn't matter if it's non-conference or in conference every single uh home game is sold out and it's loud they've got huge speakers on either baseline and they're just blowing the competition out it oh just, it's a party oh my yep. god have you been there? I haven't been there, but I've seen the videos. And oh. I, I would say everyone who has not seen it, look it up. It was, go it to was, YouTube, type in Grand Canyon Basketball. I mean, UIC, you know, as, as a broadcast for UIC, we were there. And first of all, it's December and it's 85 degrees. And you would think that, it, you know, the student body could be anywhere else beside the arena. No, no, that was a the spot. They went right there and they just, it was so loud along with the music was just just pounding the music is just pounding it's like any team that comes in there they can't hear what's going on in the huddle there's no way uh as, as loud as it is in there and scott williams the old bull does uh color analysis on the tv side and i told him after the game i was like i never seen anything like this this is the loudest place he goes yeah man we can't hear ourselves doing tv and i got headphones on <laughs> i said i know and dan marley by the way will always have a special um place in my heart dan marley um when uh, JD and I went to Phoenix for the uh, final four, I think that was maybe two or three years ago. Uh, we're in Phoenix and we're having dinner together. And uh, he said, well, you want to go back to the hotel? I go, you know what, JD, we have unfinished business in this town. Got into an Uber X <laughs> and it got into, it went from Phoenix to Scottsdale. And I tell you what, I think I'm still paying for uh, on, on my, card here uh the bill from all of the dan marley bars in scottsdale that we went to <laughs> it was unbelievable i don't I've heard good things about those i don't remember a thing <laughs> but it just jd and i we, they poured us somehow we got poured into another uber xl to go back to phoenix to our hotel in downtown phoenix but boy scottsdale was so much fun and poor and dan marley my god i mean he he is what did J- JD tweeted it out just recently? Something along the lines of, "You can uh, buy, you can have a, a, you know, redo your kitchen with how much money that we spent." <laughs> I did see that. Yep. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, it was so ridiculous. And the bill afterwards, man, which is like, what in the world? Oh, what a great time in Scottsdale. He owns like three or four bars and restaurants in Scottsdale. Boy, we spent so much money. My, my god, I just. A real quick story about this, Tyler. It's nothing like being in Scottsdale, and you are, uh, you know, you're drinking Jack Daniels, and you're just taking shot after shot, and then you're saying, "Hey, can I get another Jack and Coke?" And the lady holds up the bottle and says, <laughs> "There's nothing left. <laughs> There's no more Jack." <laughs> and I said, "Well, let me." I said, "Well, honey." Give me, give me the cousin crown. Give me Jack's cousin crown. Open that up as you're listening to Under the Hood.